Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. As you'll recall in episode 11, the first of this three-part series, we started to look at the history of lumbering in Algonquin Park in the Ottawa Valley. In this episode, I've invited my dear friend and fellow historical writer and archaeologist, Roderick Mackay, who is also known as Rory. As well as being an author of Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, he's also the author of two logging-related books. One is called The Spirits of the Little Bonachure, and the second is called More About the Cambu Shanty, home to the shantymen of the 19th century. For more about what daily life was like in the Cambu shanties, where the loggers spent their winters up until about the end of the 19th century, I thought it would be a nice change of pace to have Rory tell us more about what his historical research has revealed. I'm also hoping that we'll talk about how the full-size replica that is at the Algonquin Logging Museum compares with both historical records and the real thing that he found in an archaeological site he investigated a few years ago. So Rory, welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. Thanks, Gay. It's a pleasure to be able to contribute. So from all the research I've done, my understanding is that by about the 1850s, thousands of men were working in the woods and living in what were called Camboose shanties or Camboose camps. What exactly was a Camboose shanty? Well, a Camboose shanty was a roof structure with walls built of round pine logs. It wasn't a fancy structure, but it could house 50 to 60 hardworking men from October through to April the following spring for perhaps three or four winters. Wow. I think I know the word shanty, but from where did the term Camboose come from? Well, most of us think of a shanty as a fairly rough built or broken down building. But in this case, the term shanty is said to come from the French Canadian word chantier, meaning a workplace related to wood. It's also been suggested that it comes from the Irish term shantig, which means a hut. The first thing you would notice if you went into a Cambu shanty was a square mound of sand or earth held in place by logs. On top, you would see a large fire that seldom went out. That was the Cambus. It is thought that the term was from Low German, meaning a ship's cooking area. It has also been suggested that the term is derived from an Algonquian word, kambas, meaning a hearth. Whatever the origin, there's no question that the kambus was literally central to the way of life in the, shand- in the lumbering shanties of the Ottawa Valley, right up to 1890 or 1900, when stove shanties began to come about. The kambus shanty is most closely associated with the square timber period, but companies cutting saw logs used them as well until health regulations required separate structures for sleeping and eating. So how was a Cambu shanty constructed? Well, apparently, yeah, apparently it usually took 10 or 12 men just a couple of weeks to build a Cambu shanty. But you couldn't build one just anywhere. Certain conditions had to be met. First, it had to be located within the timber limit a company was licensed to cut, and not too far away from the stands of pine to be harvested over that year's winter. 
As the trees were cut, the men would have to walk farther and farther to get to work. When too much time was spent in walking, after a few years, a new shanty was constructed, usually the next spring, next year. A shanty had to be located close to, the to a source of water for both men and horses, often near a stream that flowed year round. It also had to be built on well-drained soil and on slightly elevated flat land, so there would be no chance of contamination by fecal material from human or horse. Remember, there'd be an outhouse and there'd also be a stable. Ideally, the shanty would be far enough away from large hills that might cause a downdraft of smoke in the chimney. And of course, the shanty had to be fairly near a waterway large enough to float square timbers or saw logs or both. Once those conditions were met, trees not suitable for market, preferably dead, were felled and dragged to the construction site. The corners of the walls were held together with saddle notches in the logs, which were piled one on top of another to above the height of a man. Usually the side walls were longer than the end walls, resulting in a rectangular structure, perhaps 40 feet by 30 feet. Once the walls were finished, two long logs were laid on either side of the long center line, about 10 to 12 feet apart. These scoop bearers would be the support for the roof components and provide for the frame of a wooden chimney over the Cambus mound in the center. The roof actually was the most expensive part to construct. Pine or cedar logs were split in half and the center of each log was hollowed out like a trough or a scoop without ends. A layer of these logs was laid over the entire roof surface with the hollow side facing up. On top of these scoops was placed another layer with the hollow side down so that water ran off the upper logs and would collect and drain in the troughs of the lower layer of logs. Hollowed cap logs were placed over where the scoops met at the center of the roof, except where the six foot by six foot chimney constructed of less flammable black spruce logs was located. Spaces between the scoops were filled with moss and the spaces between the wall logs were filled with moss and plastered with mud and a horse manure. The horse manure provided the fiber to hold it all together. Usually there was a door, no more than six feet tall, on the southern end wall. Only occasionally was there a single small window. Wow, that sounds like it was pretty dark inside. What did the shanty look like inside? Gay, as a reader of history, I've read extensively about the shanties, and I have a fair sense of what they look like inside. But I'm a firm believer that one cannot beat the authenticity and feel of an original source. Some years ago, I read a short passage from the following, which I'll read, in a book called Lumber Kings and Shantymen, written by David Lee. It was just a short quotation, and I wanted to see more, so I tracked down the original article in a British magazine from 1862. It had been written by an anonymous writer who had not only visited a shanty, but had actually stayed there for months. It's just one of the many contemporaneous descriptions included in my book, more about the Cambu shanty. I just happened to have a copy nearby from which to read. After describing his trip from town into the countryside by sleigh and through increasingly deep, deeper forest, in the early afternoon, the author of the article came upon a shanty. He wrote, 
The first notice of our approach to it was given us by the smoke which we saw curling up through the trees. There was no external evidence of any arrangement to let in the light, save the chinks in the door. But within, I seemed to see the scene now and would that I could describe it. Descending a step more than a foot high, one passed from the brightness of day without to twilight within. As my eyes became accustomed to the gloom, I began to study the appearance of my future home. All the light for doing this came down the chimney, which might as well have been called a hole in the roof. Underneath this hole and in the center of the building was the camboose or fireplace, a frame of timber six or seven feet square and one and a half high, filled with earth on which smoldered the remains of a wood fire. With one end in the corner of the chimney framework and the other in a hole in one of the beams, was the upright of a crane, the arm of which extended out over the fire for the support of the huge pots in which tea is made and pork is boiled. By the side was a wooden trough from which the presence of a piece of soap beside it and of a towel hanging close by, I concluded to be the contrivance for washing. From the color of the towel, I guessed it to be a public one, which I afterwards found to be indeed the fact. All round the walls were what appeared to be bread shelves, about four feet from the ground, covered with blankets, which on closer inspection I found to be beds. A layer of young spruce trees served for bedstead, and a pair of blankets served each man for bed and bedding. The color of the blankets was beyond description, a kind of smoky brown verging on dingy black. The beds ranged round three sides of the apartment, the fourth being reserved to the culinary department. One end of a narrow shelf covered with tin plates and dishes or cups served for butler's pantry. The other end supporting two or three huge large round loaves, 15 inches in diameter and six inches thick, together with numerous pieces of cold boiled pork was the larder. While the scullery was in the corner below where were the great pots for boiling the pork and baking the bread. And by the way, I should mention, he mentions that underneath the blanket was spruce, uh, young spruce trees, it would have been balsam because spruce has square needles and balsam has flat needles and are much softer. Our narrator went out into the woods to see the men at work, felling and squaring the massive pines and returned with them at the end of the day. He wrote, the shanty at night presented a more enlivened appearance than it did on our arrival at noon. The fire was built up with huge logs, some of which took two men to lift them and roared far up the chimney. And the space between the camboose and the beds was filled with dark forms in red shirts, some singing most monotonous melodies with half intelligible words, others playing cards for pieces of tobacco about the size of a penny for stakes. Some more industrious were whittling axe handles, while in one corner was perched, cross-legged like a tailor, on his bed, a fiddler, who with his left hand was vehemently fiddling a merry jig, while nearby were two men performing their steps and stringently beating time to the music with their feet. This concourse of sights and sounds, together with an occasional clatter of the tin dishes as the cook washes them up, lasts for about two hours. 
Then the interval between jigs becomes longer until the music ceases altogether. The songs are hushed and the axe handles receive their finishing touch and final glances of approval. And the card players break up. Then the last pipes are lighted. Some men even going so far as to get into bed with a yet unextinguished pipe between their teeth. Then one man after another retires after kneeling by his bedside to repeat his prayers, the fire ceases gradually to crackle and blaze, and all is silence. Gay, I should mention that although the writer of that piece did not say the time of that silence, the foreman woke everybody up at five o'clock the next morning, except the Teamsters who were up earlier to tend to their horses. That was the case every day but Sunday. With no work the next day, the men stayed up later on Saturday night. When Robert Taylor of Arnfrier worked in a shanty some 35 years later, the layout was much the same, except that the number of men in the bunks had increased. Two men slept on a bottom bunk and two men slept on a top bunk, both made of logs and wooden slats. There being no spaces at the side of the bunks, you would have to crawl into bed from the end. That's why the bunks were sometimes referred to as muzzle loaders. A bench at the end of the bunks served as a step up to the top. Wow, that must made turning over at night a bit difficult. How often did the men turn over in their mattresses? Well, that's a, they didn't actually turn their mattresses. That's a trick question. And I used that very question back in the winter of 1975 and 76 when I interviewed old time loggers for the Algonquin Park Museum. The fact is there were no mattresses. The bottom of the bunks was just wooden slats. Now, sometimes the men made their bed softer with the tips of branches of the flat needled balsam fir, as I mentioned before. If they're lucky, they could find some clean hay from the stable, or they would collect beaver hay from an overgrown beaver pond nearby, a beaver meadow. When they said they would hit the hay at the end of a long day, they really meant it. Each man would, would lay a gray woolen blanket down over his self-made mattress and crawl into bed, feet towards the camboose fire, and cover himself with two similar blankets. The men presumably slept in their clothes if they were dry. I'm sure one hoped that one's bunkmate did not snore loudly. Wow, what a life. So how else did the shanty in which Robert Taylor worked differ? I'm not so sure that there was much difference other than the bunks, but Taylor included more in his description. He mentioned the large barrels of water that supplied the men with wash water and the cook with water for cooking and the men for drinking. He mentioned grindstones set up between the door of the, and the camboose, and he mentioned the very large locked box called the van. If a man needed a shirt or a pair of socks or underwear or a needle and thread or gloves, he could buy what he needed from the van. The clerk kept track of the price of all purchases from the van, as well as the number of days a man worked. At the end of the winter, the purchases were deducted from the man's wages. Uh, there'd also be a large pile of wood in the cook's corner, kept supplied by a chore boy, who was just as often an older man than a boy, the Cambus camp would consume a cord and a half of wood each day. 
Now, for those not familiar with burning wood for heat, a cord is eight feet long, four feet wide, and four feet high. In Robert's camp, the cook's domain was to the right as you stepped in the door. The cook was generally in charge inside the shanty, although not above the foreman. The cook assigned in what corner you stowed your bag, where you slept, and on what peg you could hang your coat. The cook's most important tools for cooking were his long-handled shovel and heavy iron hooks, with which he moved around the cast iron pots in which most of the cooking and baking was done. The shovel was used to place hot sand and embers on the tops of the closed pots to distribute heat evenly for baking. So there were embers underneath and embers on the top. A gay, I've tried it myself, and getting the heat distribution is not easy unless you have much experience. A good cook was essential in a camp and could make or break a camp. Yeah, I tried that as well, and my only result was totally burnt beans. Uh, earlier in your reading, you mentioned boiled pork and bread. Um, that sounds like a pretty plain menu. What else was on the menu? Apparently, in the very early years of the timber trade, the men ate boiled pork, which was preserved in salt water and stored in barrels, thick split pea soup, bread or bannock, and they drank hemlock needle tea. As companies became larger, probably in the 1860s, the food improved. There was still salt pork, but after about 1850, navy beans replaced the split peas as a staple. The beans were boiled until soft and baked in heavy leaded cast iron pots covered in ashes from the fire. Bread, usually sourdough or raised with baker's yeast, was mixed in a large flour box and baked daily. Molasses was available as a sweetener. Often a certain amount of green tea was included as part of a man's contract, but in some camps they had to pay for it. In 1854, Thomas Kiefer, in a speech, described the process of making tea in the shanty. Fill a pot with water, cram as much tea as the pot will hold, and as the cover will force in. Place the pot over the fire to heat it to a near boil. As tea is poured out, add fresh additions of tea and water until the tea becomes too strong. Now, how did you gauge that? I don't know, because it was said by some that the tea in the shanty was so strong that you could float an ax in it. And that was the drinkable kind. Gay, I'm not sure if it's true, but some say that the green tea prevented scurvy in the, in the shanties. There weren't a lot of vegetables. Wow. I should mention that the fare was pretty much the same for breakfast, lunch, and supper every day. If you got tired of beans, salt pork, molasses, tea, and bread, you could add variety by eating them in a different order. It would be years before the menu included fancy foods like dried apples and potatoes and raisins. Apparently, some cooks in the shanty would prepare a special treat for the men on Sunday. Sea pie was named after a similar surrounding French-Canadian dish. Layers of salt pork and any fresh game meat got by the men including beaver or deer, was alternated with layers of bread dough in a large baking pot. If an ox died or if a steer had been brought to the camp for slaughter, there'd be beef in the sea pie as well. Wow. 
Is it true that the cook wouldn't let there be any conversation at meals? Well, Gay, it's interesting. I've, I've read that the men in the shanty could help themselves as long as there was food left, even in the middle of the night. So the pots were left out at the side of the fire. That suggests to me that the cook's rule that meals were to be eaten in silence was more of a custom in the sawlog camps of later years. A cook then, along with two helpers, would have to prepare meals and do cleanup for a hundred men in a cookery separated from the sleep camp. But historian Audrey Saunders, whose book I looked up yesterday, had, had talked in 1944 to men much older than the ones I interviewed, and she was told that the famous rules of no talking, help yourself and be quick about it, date from the time of the Cambus shant shanties. Hmm. I suppose it's true. If you're eating, you can't talk, right? Or if you're talking, you can't eat. So makes sense. And the cook had lots to do. Right. It wasn't easy to cook. Right. Oh, one question, though. You haven't mentioned any tables. On what did the men eat? Well, there were no tables or chairs or cutlery or plates other than the shanty bowls that the company supplied. Generally, the men took a thick slice of bread and either used the bread or their shanty bowl to hold some salt pork and baked beans, perhaps with molasses. And then they sat on one of the benches at the end of a bunk or on the beams of the camboose or on the wood pile or even on the flattened pole floor to eat their meal. Wow. I can't imagine 40 men doing that. Something. Um, you mentioned scurvy, which is caused by a lack of vitamin C. Um, but I read somewhere else that there was very little sickness in the camps. Old-time shantymen claimed the Cambus shanty was a much healthier environment than the camps of the Sawlog era. That may be partly because there were fewer men in each camp, and because if you were too sick to work, you didn't get paid, so most of the time they worked. But it could also be said that with a large chimney and imperfect ceiling of the walls, there was better ventilation in the older style camps. However, the historical record reminds us that before vaccinations, there could be serious illnesses. We know that black diphtheria spread through the camps of the Ottawa and Bonshire Valleys in the early 1890s, and that there was an incidence of smallpox at a shanty at Lake of Two Rivers. There were other conditions that would bother us today, but were just accepted then. One man I talked to said of the lumber camps, if you didn't have lice, you didn't belong there. <laughs> yeah, I was also reading uh, the other day uh, uh, that there were a few camps in 1918 that suffered because of the flu pandemic as well that went through them at that time. Sure. I thought, Rory, it'd be fun to take a short break and share with our audience a shanty song that I found in the Internet Archive, a website devoted to saving cultural artifacts. On it was an album of lumbering songs from the Ontario shanties. This one is called The Shanty Boys Alphabet and is sung by Sam Campsale and recorded by Edith Folk. Unfortunately, the site doesn't indicate when the song was recorded, but it was uploaded in 2012. A is for axe that cutteth the pine, B for the jolly boys never behind, C for the cutting we early begin, and D for the danger we oft times are in. And it's merrily merry, so merry are we, 
No mortal on earth is more happy than we. And it's high dearly, ho dearly, high dearly down. Give the shanty boy whiskey and his head will go round. E is the echo that makes the woods ring. F is the formal ahead of our gang. G is the grindstone we grind our axe on. And H is the handle so smoothly worn. And it's merrily merry, so merry are we. No mortal on earth is more happy than we. And it's high dearly, ho dearly, high dearly down. Give the shanty boy whiskey and his head will go round. I is the iron that marketh the pine. J for the jolly boys never behind. K is the keen edge on our axes we keep. And L for the lice that keep us from sleep. And it's merrily merry, so merry are we. No mortal on earth is more happy than we. And it's high dearly, ho dearly, high dearly down. Oh, the shanty boy welcomes when nothing goes wrong. M is the moss we stick to our camps. N is the needle we sew up our pants. O is the owl that hoots in the night. And P for the tall pines we always fall right. And it's merrily merry, so merry are we. No mortal on earth is more happy than we. Then it's high dearly, ho dearly, high dearly down. Give the shanty boy whiskey and his head will go round. Q is the quarrels we never allow. R is the rivers, our logs they do plow. S is the sleigh, so stout and so strong. And T for the teams that haul them along. And it's merrily merry, so merry are we. No mortal on earth is more happy than we. And it's high dearly, ho dearly, high dearly down. No, the shanty boy welcomes when nothing goes wrong. U is the use we put our teams to. V is the valleys we force our roads through. W the woods we leave in the spring. Of the other three letters, I don't think I'll sing. I know I've read recordings of, of, or at least I've read descriptions of people coming across the remains of Cambu shanties. Have you actually seen the remains of a particular or an actual Cambu shanty? I started looking at old lumber camps and other historic sites in Algonquin Park back in the mid 1970s. And I've had the good fortune to have found or been shown a few Cambu shanty sites. There must have been hundreds of them in the park, but I've only seen a few. I've even had the opportunity to study one shanty from 1871 from an archaeological perspective. Now to, to explain, I have had an archaeological license from the Ministry Responsible for Culture in Ontario since 2001. In 2008, while looking at an old timber limit survey, I noticed a shanty on the map. A friend and I went there one day and we noticed, noticed earthen mounds in a square on the forest floor and a mound in the center of the square. Apparently, most shanties had earth piled around their sides to prevent drafts coming in along the floor. And in this case, the central mound suggested a camboose and therefore a camboose shanty. I wanted to learn more about shanties, so I sought permission from Ontario Parks to study that particular one. I spent one week working on site in each of five summers, the results of which 
I later published in Ontario Archaeology. The shanty I studied was the furthest upstream of five others associated with a lumber company depot farm on a lake five lakes downstream. Through careful excavation of just a portion of the site, because you don't want to excavate the whole thing, I discovered that the shanty was almost identical in size to the replica shanty at the Algonquin Logging Museum. The earth piled around the bottom logs of the camboose was dug on site, making a series of ditches around the camboose, just on the outside. And that apparently is fairly distinctive. I also discovered that the camboose mound was made of earth excavated from a deep pit in the ground on the opposite side of the camboose than the door. So in this case, on the north side. And it was a fairly deep pit. It was over a, a, a meter deep. Wow. Um, it, it, this was as Audrey Saunders had described in 1944 at the remains of a Cambu shanty up at Cedar Lake. I thought I'd found something new. She'd already beat me out by many, many years. Uh, in most cases, in both cases, the pit would likely have been covered by the shanty floor, which I know was made of poles flattened at the top because some were still visible when the soil above was removed. Part of the Cambus mound was easily excavated, revealing a mixture of sand, ashes, and many tiny bones, as well as a shanty T-bowl in fair condition as a 140-year-old artifact, but in very poor condition for holding tea. Interestingly enough, the other part of the Cambus itself was almost uh, solid like concrete. It was a very strange situation. Um, one thing that we did discover was that even before the walls went up, the men cut down any roots or stumps projecting from the ground. And they also added extra soil where necessary in both cases to ensure a flat surface for the floor. And you could tell that they'd done that because of the different layers of in the soil. There were some interesting artifacts that were unexpected. I found an ax and a saw wedge each bearing the letter K, made with a chisel right into the steel. The letter K was the company mark of the Purley and Patty Lumber Company of Ottawa and the operator of the depot farm, Five Lakes Down. I also found an ax file just lying on one of the stones at the edge of the Cambus fireplace. Previously, I had only heard of grindstones being used to sharpen axes, but here was a, an ax file. Finally, and perhaps not surprisingly, I found a broken liquor bottle with raised lettering on the ashes of the cambus. There was also some of that lead foil that you use for sealing liquor bottles, which suggests the bottle was opened right there. Now in the very early lumber camps, it was common to have a tot of rum daily, but that had become a problem, I guess as more men were in the camps. And certainly by 1871, liquor was banned from the camps. Yet here was a bottle. A search among fellow archeologists for a name that would match the five raised letters on the glass fragments revealed that someone had brought into this Cambus shanty a bottle of scotch manufactured in Paisley, Scotland. Hmm. Oh, uh, there was one other surprise. At the edge of the Cambus, where they had fallen, I found three half beans, charred enough to not rot and not 
burned up by the fire. When I mentioned this find to loggers and foresters, they considered it to be no big deal because everybody knows that there were beans in the lumber camps. But I believe this was the first archeological evidence that there were beans in the Cambus camps. C.H.D. Clark examined and measured the remains of a Cambu shanty on Lake Opiongo in 1959, prior to construction of the original replica at the Pioneer Logging Exhibit. But I know of no other Cambu shanty studied in such, detailed, uh, in such detail as the study that I made. In 1992, the larger replica shanty at the Algonquin Logging Museum was constructed under the direction of Tom Linklater, a former park ranger, and now at age 90, author of a wonderful memoir that was recently published entitled The Last Forest Ranger, Algonquin Park Memories. As far as I know, and this is really important, as far as I know, the Algonquin Logging Museum Cambu Shanty is the only Cambu Shanty in the world and well worth seeing. Were the, were the Cambu Shanties Anywhere other than Ontario? I mean, did they have them in BC and in other countries? There was a kind of camp called a state of Maine camp in the, along the Eastern seaboard. And there must've been huts of some sort um, down in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and so on, which also had a lumbering industry. And I've actually seen um, the remains of a, I presume a Cambus shanty on the Bonchere River, about 400 meters outside of Algonquin Park, that is a rectangle, but there, the mound that would have been the fireplace was at one end. And sometimes there are really early descriptions from the 1830s of these shanties with the fireplace at one end. Um, the Cambus shanty that I've described and that we've see, heard in literature is fairly typical of the Ottawa Valley. Um, as people moved further and further west in search of saw logs, particularly, and they got out into Wisconsin and Michigan, and there was a, a kind of building there that had, it was really two rectangular buildings with one roof that joined in the center, and that was called a dingle. And there was a fellow, um, who did some archaeological work on those out in Michigan and Wisconsin um, that had that work published. But as I said, I, I'm only aware of one study that's been done in um, in Ontario on a Cambu shanty, hmm. which, which is interesting because they, they were very common at one time, and they are a fascinating aspect of, um, of our history. And when you've only got one example, there were things that I found that I didn't expect. Um, I found all sorts of, not, not dozens of them, but maybe, maybe 12 or 13 little white buttons that looked like shirt buttons. So obviously those somehow came off. I, I thought, well, big lumberjacks would have big shirts with big buttons, but I found these little buttons. Um, there were a, a few fragments of pipe stems. Uh, I thought for sure that people would lose things as they went out the door and might fall out of their pocket and so on. I did a, I did an excavation right where the doorway was. You could see a, a gap in the mounds. And uh, 
there was nothing nothing there at all just soil mm -hmm. um so yeah there were there were different variations on the cambu shanty and apparently they got bigger up until about 1900 and then they moved stoves in instead of the cambus and then the, this, this health regulation said you can't have men eating and sleeping in the same area mm -hmm. but apparently the old shanty men said that was the way to go they didn't like the newfangled sleep camp and and um cookery hmm. interesting the other question i wanted to ask you about because i was reading this the other day was that apparently if they were going to set up a new shanty or even you know for the next season they had to bring all the supplies in like months and sometimes even a year ahead of time and there was oh, actually sure. sometimes a uh, um, I was going to say a night watchman, but that's not the right word. But, uh, you know, somebody whose job was to check to make sure that the supplies weren't, you know, taken over by squirrels or chipmunks or yes. and turn the flower. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, most important thing, I guess, is that a lot of a lot of what happened in the way of supporting these lumber camps happened in the wintertime. At the same time as they were working on cutting the trees down. The reason you do that is because the snow allows less friction with the when you're pulling logs. Well, when you're taking uh, loads of, of flour and salt pork and whatever else into these camps, you didn't use wagons because the way there were no real good roads. You used a winter road and used portage sleighs and hauled things in. And um, so, so that was that was how the the camps were supported, and that usually happened the year before you were going to move on to the next location where there'd be a shanty. Sometimes they would bury the barrels of, of pork and, and I don't think they'd bury, bury the, the flour, but certainly they'd bury barrels of salt pork because you didn't want bears getting into them and so on in the summertime. And yes, there were men whose job it was to go to what they called a keepover, uh, a building where they stored food and, and other materials including all the not so much all the hay but the um the oats and so on for the horses everything had to be hauled in it was a an incredibly difficult logistical task i hope you've enjoyed this little adventure down memory lane to share with you what it was like in a cambu shanty back in the 19th century for those interested in learning more, Rory's book, More About the Cambu Shanty, can be found on the Friends of Algonquin Park online store or at either of their bookstores at both the Algonquin Park Logging Museum or the Algonquin Park Visitor Center. In our next episode, I'll pick up our historical narrative again and we'll follow the pine square timbers and saw logs downstream from the lakes and rivers where they were cut to the Ottawa River. <laughs>